topic of uh, the fear of failure. And so, you know, I wish I had some content from my life to share that would be relevant, but you, know, you might be a Pharisee if. Um, I want to take just a second. Um, we've got uh, this 21-day prayer and fasting journal that some of y'all may have gotten. I had it in my heart as I was putting this devotional together um, to give people the opportunity, if they wanted to meet with one of our pastors, um, to email us and meet, and we want to meet with you guys and pray through with you guys as fears are being uncovered in your heart and your life. And I put my email as the contact for pastoral ministry, and I misspelled my last name in my email. And I was like mortified by this. And this week the staff were like, should we say something on Sunday? And I was like, guys, I'm preaching on failure. I got this. Uh, I'll handle the announcement. So I apologize if you've been like wanting pastoral ministry. Um, this, hopefully your email was bounced back and you realized that there was a typo there. Um, all that to say, let me pray for us and myself and we'll jump in. Lord, we just give you this time. We ask that you would... Just minister to our hearts, Lord. To some extent, we all deal with a fear of failing. Certainly, some more than others, but this is something that none of us are untouched by. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would minister to our hearts in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we're talking about the fear of failure today. I want to talk about failure itself and also, to some extent, success. So, um, God said, where are you? And the answer that came back was, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid. I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 3 to begin this morning. Genesis 3, 8, this is after Adam and Eve have eaten the forbidden fruit, disobeyed the Lord, and it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9 and 10 says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Isn't it remarkable how quickly Adam and Eve learned to be afraid? They had only ever known existence and relationship with God that was only ever defined by safety and love in intimacy, and immediately they learn to be afraid. That fear isn't something they had to practice. It's not an emotion they had to figure out. It's like the second real danger confronted them for the, probably the first time in their existence. They immediately experience fear because that's what fear does. It seizes you. You don't practice it. It gets you. It comes upon you. And in many ways, it's not surprising at all that Adam and Eve even though they had only ever known this perfect intimacy and safety with God, were afraid. Because, I mean, if someone tells me that on the day I do something they tell me not to do, I'm going to die, and then I do that thing, and then that person comes calling, like, I'd be afraid too, right? So it's perfectly understandable that they're afraid. They've been told they're going to die the day they do this thing. Also, the world that they'd known has always only ever been good and perfect, and they suddenly become aware after eating this fruit of this reality called evil, this way of living that's bent on death and destruction. Maybe they looked down at the serpent at their feet and thought, wondered maybe if this is one of the evil beings they've been awakened to. Um, I doubt they had the wherewithal to look in themselves. 
and see that evil took residence in their own heart the second they disobeyed God. Um, but maybe they did, and maybe that terrified them. Um, Jonathan Martin says this, Becoming an adult in our culture is synonymous with being made perfect in fear. And that's kind of a play on the first John chapter 4, right? Being made perfect in love. The older we get, the more fragile we feel and the more precarious our future seems. Imagination, wonder, joy, and creativity become endangered species. One by one, they begin to die off. But by then, we're too preoccupied with all that we fear to even notice that it's happening. And I believe that part of what the gospel does in us is we allow it to make inroads into our soul is it restores to you and me some of that primal imagination and wonder and joy and creativity that characterized life in Eden that was immediately robbed of humanity as fear set in. And it's as we live into the grace of the gospel that I think we're re-gifted some of that as we walk through this life. Um, and so I want to talk about success. I want to talk about the idol of success as we kind of continue um, this topic on the fear of failure because I think it's really relevant. And I just want to put a few thoughts on, on the screen for us to consider. And I think this is important for us as Americans maybe. We're terrified of failing because we don't know where to go with the shame of our failure. And I think this is true even for many Christians who doctrinally know exactly where to go with the shame of their failure. American society has convinced us that the only way to cleanse the shame of our failure is for us to try again and succeed, basically, right? So, I mean, think about it. We, you know, you think of a business owner whose business fails. Um, like, we don't have any time for a story of a business owner whose business failed unless they pick themselves up by their bootstrap and started a new business that was of raging success. Like, that's okay. Like, we'll forgive the shame of your public failure as long as you try again and succeed. So really, ultimately, success is the atonement for failure in the way our society works so much of the time. Um, now, in the ancient world, idolatry, the worship of, of other gods, idolatry was essentially the worship of success. So I'll explain what I mean by that. If you were a Canaanite worshiper, you would worship the god Baal, or Baal, uh, who was the storm god, hoping to be blessed with uh, the rains for a successful harvest. If you were going to war and say you were a Greek, you would worship Ares, the god of war, to be blessed with success in battle. If you um, were going on a voyage across the sea, you'd worship the sea god, whoever it was, Poseidon or whoever, and sacrifice to them. Uh, in hopes to have a safe and successful voyage. If you wanted to conceive a child, you would offer sacrifices to whatever the fertility god or goddess was in hopes to be successful in conceiving. It was basically just the worship of success and whatever endeavor that patron god was for the thing you wanted to get done. Does that make sense? It was essentially the worship of success, which makes verses to me, like Romans 1.21, so fascinating and the, the verses beyond it. So Paul says this about humanity. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give uh, thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals 
and creeping things. So these, these are the idols, right? Idols sometimes look like a bird or a half man, half beast or whatever it might be. And again, think of what I just said about how idolatry is the worship of success. And then look at this verse, what Paul's, the contrast Paul's making. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. The word futile means to be incapable of producing any fruitful results. And that's the incredible irony here, is they're worshiping and chasing success and being productive in everything they do, and yet they're rendering themselves incapable of producing the results that actually matter. They're actually making themselves total failures <laughs> in their pursuit of success. And that's why I like statements like what Francis Chan will point out when he says things like, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. I mean, for me, I just kind of leave all the harsh words to Francis Chan. That's like his MO, is saying the mean things I don't really want to say. Um, but it's so true, right? Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. Now, let's be clear. It's not like the Hebrew people were the, this weird people on the earth that never prayed to their God for success. Um, that's totally not true. I mean, we could look at verses like Psalm 118, 25, for example, right? Save us, we pray, O Yahweh. I put the personal name of, of Israel's God there for us to kind of couch it in that, this ancient world. O Yahweh, we pray, give us success, right? So, I mean, who wants to fail at everything they do? Nobody. Who, who wants to succeed? Everybody. There's nothing wrong with success, um, at all, but I think as we consider success and failure, so much comes up in our hearts as we approach these things. John Wesley was a great preacher and the founder of Methodism, and he uh, preached a sermon one day. Someone came up to him afterwards and said, that was a great sermon, and he said, yes, I know. The devil's already told me that. And although the devil has a lot to say to you when you feel like a failure, um, he has a lot to say to you when you feel like a success. And I think in many ways the shame of our failure is fueled um, by this idol of success and this feeling that the only way we can really atone for our feeling of failure is just to succeed, right? Uh, that's really how it happens. That's really how you feel better about yourself again is just by becoming a success. Um, so I want to share a little bit from the soil of my own life for a moment with you guys. In, in 2010, uh, January 2010, Jordan and I uh, got married. And within the span of one year, uh, I got married, started a church, and started seminary. It was insane. Um, in fact, any Visanites here, I just want to encourage you not to do that. <laughs> uh, Ash, you know, just so you, that's a free one. Um, <laughs> unless you get it like an angelic visitation. Um, so all that to say, we jumped into four years in my life of just in incredible busyness and hurry. Um, the Lord did some amazing, beautiful, wonderful things um, in the five years of this, this church, Hope Culture, that we planted. Um, but I don't want to talk about those. This sermon is about failure. So let's fast forward to the bad part. Um, year five of, of this church plant, I mean, after 
several years of just, you know, those early years of, first few years of marriage, um, being in divinity school, church planning, I was just at the end of myself, just exhausted, emotionally bankrupt, um, and super discouraged over the fact that hope culture uh, just wasn't growing. Um, and it, I just, it didn't feel like the, I mean, what, like the financial stability wasn't there for it to last long term, and I could see that. We were overstaffed, really, for kind of how much we had coming in, and I w- was just terrified over the you know, prospect of having to introduce pay cuts to people that I hired for not very much money to begin with. <laughs> and, um, and just discouraged of wondering, like, are Jordan and I ever going to be able to own a home, ever going to feel like we can start a family? Um, and so many nights, especially during that last six months of the church, like, just going to bed, just with tears in my eyes, just, and reading, I was reading my journals recently, there's so many, so many dark moments in there, it's just so depressing to read it, uh, of just me just saying, God, I'm just a failure, I'm just a totally failed pastor, and I believe that at, really at my core, and, um, you know, there were so many inadequacies and insecurities that were just stirring up in me, rising up in me all the time during those years. One of the big ones that, you know, I've always looked about a decade younger than I am, um, which I know at some point, as people always tell me, that's going to be wonderful. Maybe when I'm 50, I don't know. Praise God for that. Um, and that's fine. But, uh, you know, I'm 34, uh, and I look like I'm 24. When I was 24 and pastoring, I looked like a 14-year-old. Not even kidding. And that's a, that's, a, uh, past, that's a vocational hazard when you're pastoring and you're 24. Um, and this, I felt this all the time. And it was, you know, I, I remember like verses, you know, Timothy was, was probably in his, his 20s as a pastor in Ephesus. And like Paul's words to Timothy, like don't let anyone look down on you to, for your youth. It was like my life verse, you know, in those years. Like, thank you, Jesus, any more, more of this. And I like comforted myself with the fact that you know Jesus was 33, his disciples would have been younger than him. The Church of Jesus Christ was planted by 20-somethings. That was like my my rock um, in those years. Um, but towards the end, I was just so discouraged. Um, you know, hope culture wasn't growing, and um, and God didn't seem like this could go on too you know more than probably another year. And um, and God, as I was really coming to a place of burnout, you know. Just, stirred a kind of a relationship with another church. We merged with them, and the 75 uh, adults and kids at Hope Culture uh, joined, merged with this other church. And um, all that to say, uh, the Lord began working in me finally. And as I, really I would say in the past five years of processing, uh, the five years of church planning, um, and restoring to me my ability to see the goodness of God, um, to actually be grateful for the people that were saved and baptized, the homeless guys we got off the street. We were a very multi-ethnic church of black and white, uh, particularly in the last two years, and getting to experience that. And God re-gifting to me an ability to actually see the goodness, because all I could see was failure for so long. And actually, by the way, people would tell me things like, it wasn't a failure, hope culture was beautiful. Well, beautiful things can fail, you know. So just because something, there was beauty that came from something doesn't mean that a goal wasn't achieved, right? So my goal wasn't to start a church that lasted five years and didn't impact more than 
a few hundred people that came through our doors over the five years. My goal is to have something way bigger, and I didn't achieve that goal. And so I was able to, I acknowledged to myself, in that sense, I failed, and I can own that. That doesn't mean that something beautiful didn't happen. It doesn't mean that God wasn't at work. It doesn't mean I can't see what God might have been up to. And what, I don't know what it is for some of us. I mean, there's small things and there's big things, whether it be you know, failed marriages, failed churches, failed business ventures, failed relationships, um, or small things. To some extent, we all are dealing with failure. Um, you know, during this season, towards the end of Hope Culture, my dad gave me this book called Fail. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. Finding Hope and Grace in the Midst of Ministry, Failure. George said, oh, Dad, how thoughtful of you. Um, No, but it was so good. Uh, Such a good book. And uh, J.R. Briggs, uh, no, it it was out of love for sure. Um, poses so many good questions, and I want to put a few up on, this, on the screen for you guys to consider as you think about your own life. Um, the first is this. What narratives of success, what stories or, or images of what success could and should look like in your life, in the different areas of your life, what narratives of success play in your heart and head and heart most regularly? Just take a second. Then I want you to think about this question. I'm not fishing here. The impact could be positive, could be negative. So maybe it, these images or stories of success are inspirational for you. Maybe they're crushing. Maybe a little bit of maybe a mixture of both. Sometimes, right? Um, so with that, as you're kind of considering, I want you to kind of have that in your heart and mind as we continue on in this sermon, as you apply this sermon to your own life. Um, so I want us to talk about experiencing grace and failure. And the truth is this, is there are a few things that call our self-worth into question more than failure does. I want to come back to Genesis chapter 3 and that story of the garden here for a moment. What's remarkable to me as I was reading the story again this week is that God doesn't have to find Adam and Eve if you read the story. He comes looking for them, but he doesn't have to find them. So they sin, they hear God coming, they run and hide among the trees. God comes to the place where they are and calls them because he doesn't see them anymore. Um, but he doesn't, it's not like God has to like, find the tree where Adam is and say, oh, there you are. Why are you hiding, right? God calls and they come out, right? Uh, and you might say, well, Adam was behind the tree and realized like, oh, pff, I forgot. God's omnipresent. <laughs> this is pointless. I'm just going to come out from the tree. Maybe, but that's actually not the way the, the, the text presents the story. It's actually quite earthy. So we see in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God. Walking is the word that's used. In the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The sense here is that, like, you know, is this poetic? Yeah, sure it's poetic. But literal or not, the imagery is of 
They're here, God's over here, God's walking, God's closing the distance on Adam and Eve as he's coming. They hide behind the trees. When God gets to the place where they are, they're no longer within eyesight, and so he says, where are you? That's the imagery, right? So let's, let's roll with the imagery that the text gives us. And when you think about it, they're hiding behind the trees, terrified, and again, God, so God says, where are you? And again, if someone tells me that I'm going to die the day I do something they tell me not to do, and then I do it, then that's going to be terrifying. They've been awakened to this reality called evil just that day, which has got to be terrifying. Why do they come out from the tree? Why do they come out from the trees? I mean, in, in, my, in my mind, in my heart, in reading of the text, the only explanation to me is there must have been something in God's voice. There must have been something in God's, where are you, that called them to overcome their fear, even of God, out from the trees. They trusted something in the heart of God to draw them out. And even though Adam and Eve, and all of us, by the way, outside of Christ, inherited spiritual death that day, um, it's not true that something didn't die physically that day. Something did die physically that day. Verse 21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, that's animal skins, and clothed them. God covers the shame of their nakedness, the shame of their failure, the first human failure. And something had to die though, right? An animal or animals had to die for this to happen. So it's not the case that nothing died that day. Just the case that Adam and Eve didn't physically die that day. Um, Alan Malawi, some of y'all may have heard of him. He was this guy who started out many, many decades ago at like the very bottom at Boeing and worked his way all the way up to the company to become the CEO and basically made Boeing into the, the company that it is. I think at one point when he left Boeing, 80% um, of the airplanes in the world were made by Boeing. Just crazy. And um, he got a call one day from an executive at uh, Ford. Ford was basically about, it was on the road to bankruptcy. It was losing, and he said, Alan, I want to let you know, um, we want you to be our CEO, if you'll consider it. I want to let you know we're losing money on every single model we have. Um, we are projecting $17 billion in losses this year. And we have $28 billion in the bank. Now, Ford owned other car brands, but their own models were all losing money. And really, across the board, they weren't performing well. And Alan decided to take, take the gig. And so he comes. And there was this tradition uh, at Ford, at the kind of Ford headquarters, where the department leaders of kind of Ford globally, were, they were there on site uh, every week. And uh, there were about 300 department heads. And the CEO would meet with them cast vision, share some stuff, but then also give a moment for anyone, uh, any of these department heads to report on the status of their department. So uh, the way that worked is if everything was good, your, everything was good in your department, you put up a green light. And if things weren't going good, you were hitting challenges or hurdles or had problems, you put up a red light. Well, things were so bad at Ford and had been that anytime anyone ever put up a red light, within a few weeks, like, Joe was gone. 
And that was just how it worked. You pretty much were putting your neck up to the noose because if someone admits there's a problem, well, then we gotta, they must be the problem. We've got to fire them. So essentially what this meeting had become is just 300 green lights. Green light, green light, green light, green light, green light. Everything's good. We're all good because you get fired if you said anything different. So Alan sits down at the first meeting and just green light, green light, green light, 300 green lights. And he's like, oh, well, it sounds like everything's going great. About to lose $17 billion, but, you know. Um, it was like this for several months, and after several months, he began to get pretty worried because things really were trending as bad as they thought and projected, and nothing was turning around. And on the face of it, everyone was saying, my department's going great. And so finally, uh, one day, one of the department heads named Mark said, I, <laughs> my department is in chaos. Like, i got to say something, even if it means I get fired. And so, you know, green light, green light, green light, green light, red light. And everyone's head just kind of dropped. And that's what happened, apparently. Whenever someone in the past had put up a red light, people just kind of averted their eyes. It got super awkward. Heads dropped because we knew this person's basically gone now. So that everyone just kind of dropped their heads, and, and it was super awkward. And then Alan just begins applauding. Everyone doesn't really know what to do with this. And he says, oh, well, how can we help Mark? And some people kind of offer some suggestions. Well, you, you could try this. You could try leveraging that. You could try this. And he said, great. Well, Mark, thank you for sharing. Report in in, in the days ahead about how things are going. Next week, um, the meeting comes. Mark's still there. And not only that, Alan had intentionally moved Mark to a seat close to himself. People are kind of taking this in. And a few more weeks, again, just 300 green lights. Um, but after a month, we realized Mark's still here. And after two months, we begin to slowly begin seeing some red lights and people saying, okay, things are bad. Things are going really bad in my department. I don't know what to do. And finally, the culture of shame of failure was broken off for that had so paralyzed it for so many years that the company began to just changed from the inside out. Employee satisfaction was triple the national rate for corporations that size. Just incredible. Corporate profits soared. And the entire, country, the entire company was turned around because the shame of failure, the fear of failure, was just broken off completely. Um, and as I think about this story, and as I think about our own life, I don't know for you, maybe you live in, a, maybe you're at a workplace where, you know, you just, Basically, people get publicly shamed if they fail. Um, maybe you're in a marriage where the moment someone messes up, it's like things just fall apart for several days until there's this cooling off period and you kind of come back until you fail again. And that's just kind of how you operate. Um, you know, I want to encourage us to be people. I want to encourage you to be people who give themselves to creating environments where it's safe to fail. Um, that the people at your job who report to you know that like, if they tell you they're having some problems, that will elicit your support rather than your anger. That you and your spouse know that we can get it wrong, we can fail. Um, that your kids know that home is a place where they can mess up and it's okay. That we would create these kinds of spaces. And I think one of the things that helps us to do that is acknowledging that we're all kind of in the same boat and that we're all limited. Um, 
Peter Scazzaro has this phrase called embracing the gift of our own limits. And I love that phrase. And I'm kind of unpacking that phrase with, with this statement, that you are blessed, not cursed with limitations. They're God's reminders that you're a creature. You know, our, our society basically sees it the exact opposite, right? Like, your limitations are your own worst enemy, so what you've got to do is blow past right up to and beyond your limitations, unlock your potential, and just treat your own limitations as this, like, curse that you have to be, you have, that you're plagued by, that you've got to be over, that you got to overcome. Um, and I'm all for self-improvement. I'm all for, for growth and expanding our capacity, our, our productivity, and our limits, but hopefully in a way that's helpful and that doesn't treat the God-given limitations in your life as a curse, right? Um, I got this spam text last week, and it said, um, it, it was this link that came with the words, this is the only solution you need to lose 45 pounds in one week this new year. <laughs> and I said to myself, like, we have a phrase for the loss of 45 pounds in a single week. It's called a near-death experience. I mean, like, if this thing works, I want to know what the mortality rate is on something like this. And the bottom line is, like, your bodies just aren't designed for that kind of rapid weight loss. And there's simply no healthy way to lose 45 pounds in one week without doing serious damage to your body. Right? Peter Scazzaro says this. I love this statement. Oh, I love it so much. We find God's will for our lives in our limitations. Which is counter to the way I think a lot of us have imbibed a lot of Christian messaging, which is kind of like, look, God's got a call for your life. It's super epic and super beyond you. So wherever God's call is, you better believe it's way out there, way beyond your limitations. You've got to break past your limitations. You've got to strive and work and grind and find God's calling for your life. Because if it's anywhere, it's certainly not within the God-given limitations and boundaries in your life. I think it's the total opposite. I think it's we find God's will for our lives right smack dab in the middle of our limitations. Charles Hummel says this, and I think this is kind of the counter to that. A fanatic has been described as a person who, when unsure of his direction, doubles his speed. And I feel like a lot of Christians kind of feel like that's where my calling is. It's like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing for Jesus, but I know if I just run harder, I'll probably run into the will of God. I'm not sure that's quite how it works. So here's what I want to say to that point. Work hard, great. Accomplish a lot of your goals and, and things, achievements you want to set for yourself. Wonderful. Check, out, check off like as much of your to-do list as you can. But... Not at the expense of your marriage, not at the expense of um, your emotional health, not at the expense of your prayer life. You know what I mean? Um, I think that sometimes we have this like this thought, if I could just increase my productivity, I can just do it all in a day. And so many of us are just living this hurried life, and I want to say this, 
I really hope this hits home. The answer to a hurried life is not to conquer your limits and increase your capacity to bite off and chew more, right? So if you're already just living at the very edge of yourself, right, and you're pushing yourself to your natural limitations, you're exhausted, you're, you're burning out. Like, I mean, if you, if you are always living at the edge of your limits and beyond it, then that always leads to dysfunction and burnout without exception. Now, if you're working hard and th- things in your life are functional and healthy and balanced and you're not exhausted, well, that means you're not pushing yourself beyond your limits all the time. <laughs> but if you're always pushing up to and beyond your limits, that leads to dysfunction and burnout in your life, in different areas of your life. So the answer is not just to have further limitations because if your mindset stays the same, well, you'll just push back to those limitations, right? Increasing productivity isn't, isn't the answer. You'll just crush yourself with the new limits you've given yourself. (laughs) The answer to a hurried life is to reorder your time, which is a limit that we all face. God doesn't have to struggle with that one. And attention. Again, we have very limited things. Our attention span is precious. You can't give your attention to very many things. So... These are, these are limits that we face. God doesn't have that problem. God can listen to five billion prayers at the same time. The answer to a hurried life is to reorder your time and attention around God's values and your limitations. I just want you to receive that as a gift. And I think that as we think about things in, in this way, it changes the metrics of success in, in our minds. It certainly has for me. Um, and I think it takes some of the sting out of the fear of failure. Adeline ran into the kitchen a few weeks ago and declared to me and Jordan, I'm going to eat all my food so I can be strong like God. And like threw her arms up like this. And, you know, we had a laugh about it, but like I couldn't help but be like, you know what? I didn't say this to my daughter, of course, but I was like, we're not strong like God. There's no comparison. There's no... We're not strong like whatever strength we have, it's not like God's strength. Um, and that's by design, by the way. Jen Wilkins says this We must recover the truth that was obscured by the serpent rather than being like God in his unlimited divinity. We're to be like God in our limited humanity. And I, I love, uh, Jordan's reading this book right now. Um, I love the, the, t- uh, the subtitle to this book, so I wanted to include it. It's none like him, 10 ways God is different from us, brackets, and why that's a good thing. It's a good thing. You know, I talked about how um, the fall of Adam and Eve was the first human failure. You know, I, I actually, I don't think, I, I wagered a bet that it wasn't the first human failure. It may have been the first moral failure. But I think there had to have been lots of times that Adam tried to do stuff and was unsuccessful and failed because he is a limited being, right? I mean, by definition, anything that's not God is limited, and anyone that's limited is going to not be successful at everything they want to do. So there had to have been times that Adam just, like, failed. He couldn't, he couldn't get it done. He, he, didn't, he wasn't able to do that. He couldn't accomplish it. Um, and by the way, that's going to be true of every limited being, with no exceptions. Job 4.18 says, In his servants, 
this is angelic servants, even in his servants, he puts no trust. In his angels, he charges with error. And most scholars agree this isn't talking about like demons or moral error. This is actually just saying, look, angels, like every other creature, are limited. God can't put 100% trust that if I give an angel this job, it will be done perfectly every single time. He can't have 100% confidence because they're limited. And when they get it wrong, when they do a, a halfway decent job, he's like, well, you didn't, you didn't do it perfect with that assignment. So if, you, if you're feeling like a failure right now in your life or in different areas of your life, give yourself a little grace. Because even angels don't do every job perfect. I mean, is that freeing for some of y'all? <laughs> that was freeing for me when I saw this. Like, even my namesake, Gabriel the archangel, he probably is like, has like a 99% success rate, you know, but like, he's not perfect. Unless you think that God like takes over or whatever. But God can't put 100% trust in his servants. He charges error when they don't get it perfect. And I think Adam, even before he fell and became a sinner, there were some, there were some fruits he couldn't reach that were not forbidden fruits because of his limitations. Um, and I think one of the things I love about this idea is that like, God looked at Adam and said, look, you need some help. And that's the beauty of, of marriage, I think, in some ways, right? Um, you need some help. And I'm going to give you a helper. I want to kind of end looking at a verse, and it's Psalm 73, 26. And we might expect, I certainly would expect, Psalm 73, 26 to say this. I want to be clear, this is not what Psalm 73, 26 says. I'm not trying to trick you. Um, But we might expect it to say something like this. My flesh and heart will never fail because God is the strength of my heart in my portion. Like this makes logical sense, right? Okay, so if God's the strength of my heart, that means my heart can never fail because God is infinitely strong, right? That, it's like very logical that that's how it should read. Okay, if, if God's strength of my heart, that means my heart will 100% succeed and never fail. Well, what does Psalm 73, 26 actually say? My heart and flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. You're going to fail. Your flesh, your body, you have physical limitations that aren't endless. Your heart, your emotional capacity breaks down, gets weak, fails, but God's the strength of your heart. Because your portion forever. We're going to do a confession. I'm going to go ahead and invite um, the team and Scott up. We're going to do a confession. And this confession is, Scott actually wrote it. I love it. Um, it's kind of based on Psalm 73, 26. And so I'll turn it over to Scott. Let me just pray just a second. Lord, I just ask that you would give us grace I know to some extent we are all touched by a fear of failure. Would you help us to see failure for what it is? Would you help us to see 
your presence in our life, Jesus, in the midst of it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Gabriel. I don't want to give him too high of praise for that, but um, <laughs> I, was, I was blessed. <clears throat> um, yes, let's, let's stand. Uh, this is just kind of trying to encapsulate what he has spent the last bit of time preaching on just in a few words. And I think there's power in corporate confession, corporate agreement. And um, basically what this is trying to do is saying, when we understand who God is, we can be honest about who we are. That when we hear kind of how Adam and Eve heard something in God's voice that drew them out, um, when we know who God is, we can be honest about who we are and come to him. And so, um, and if you're watching online, it's gonna be on the screen for you as well. Um, but I will obviously read the part that says under leader, and then together we will affirm the part where under it says, underneath where it says,